Let's talk about stress, cortisol, and weight loss resistance, and how it may be playing a role in your weight loss resistance. Welcome to the Menopause Mastery Podcast, a show for women just like you who are ready for more health, vitality, passion, living life with a purpose. I created this show because I knew that women just like me in this second season of life, the season of menopause, are really tapping into their deepest desires. And we're ready to harness our physical and mental health and explore what our true passions are and peel back the layers to uncover exactly what we want out of life. I'm your host, Betty Murray, part geek, part magician, and your new medical bestie with a dash of sass. I love taking the complex science and making it easier to integrate into daily life. So let's join the journey to make this season the best ever. Today, I'm going to talk a lot more about cortisol and how it plays a role, particularly in weight gain. We're going to talk a lot about women, but this applies to men as well. This is part of the series that I did earlier last year in 2022, where I talked about the 12 reasons why women struggle with weight gain after 40 and especially struggle with losing it and keeping it off because our hormones interplay with each other and especially the hormone estrogen and progesterone when they change at that time period of life. We see some extraordinary changes metabolically that just don't get talked about. I want to make sure that you have all the information. So I, I got a lot of questions after I did that series to go into greater detail on each individual topic point. So I'm doing that, especially at the beginning of 2023, so I can really go into the details so you understand these mechanisms. So let's talk about stress, cortisol, and weight loss resistance and how it may be playing a role in your weight loss resistance. So first off, cortisol is a hormone that's produced by the adrenal glands, and it's in response to stress. And it's often referred to as the stress hormone because it plays a role in helping your body cope with stress. And it plays along with adrenaline, uh, which is norepinephrine and epinephrine, which is part of your fight or flight mechanism. And cortisol is an important hormone to maintain homeostasis. So that a high level can have a negative effect if it's high all the time. And it's known to obviously cause weight gain, obesity, and insulin resistance. And cortisol is really designed to be this intermediary after a significant stress event. So fight or flight happens when something shocks you or surprises you. So let's say I'm talking on this podcast and let's say a car rams through the window next to me. I, I am going to react to that in a, in a heightened response. That is a fight or flight response. After that response, cortisol comes in to buffer the response and continue our ability to handle that stress. But cortisol, if it's all on all the time, can lead to these health problems like weight gain, obesity, insulin resistance. And one way it does that is it actually increases appetites and craving for high calorie and high fat foods. So when the body's under stress, it produces more cortisol, which can stimulate the release of another hormone called ghrelin. And ghrelin increases hunger and cravings. So this can often lead to overeating and weight gain, especially if the diet is not a healthy diet. So one of the things that I've found is many of us have gone on many fad diets where we might not be eating enough throughout the day. Maybe we're trying fasting, but we're not doing a thoughtful process of fasting. So what I tell people is if you get to a meal and you're white knuckling it, right? You're like, oh my God, if I can't eat right now, I'm going to kill somebody and I'm going to chew them up and eat them. 
or you feel like your blood sugar is dropping, or let's say you're making dinner and you have to like scavenge food while you're doing it, that's probably the sign that your cortisol has kicked in and you have this increased appetite and you have kicked in this response. So even things like inappropriate eating, inappropriate fasting, and not good meal composition can actually lead to a lot of excess cortisol and then obviously weight gain and things that go with it. So the other thing is when the body's under stress and we produce a lot of cortisol, it also produces an enzyme that breaks down muscle tissue to convert it into energy. What if I spent a good couple decades of my life, which most women I can attest to, after about the age of 25, if it wasn't already prior to that, we have probably spent multiple decades where we'd say that our life has been hair on fire stressful all the time. And so when my cortisol is high, it's going to break down muscle tissue and convert it into energy. This is known as catabolism, so breakdown. And it can lead to muscle loss, increased fat mass, especially if the body's not getting enough physical activity. But even if you are working out, you could be engaging this all the time. And that catabolism can also be engaged depending on the type of exercise we do. So you know that I definitely recommend doing a lot of weight training because it is anabolic, not catabolic. So it helps you build muscle. But we also need movement to help with cardiovascular fitness and other things. If you are doing a higher intensity, more like a zone three, zone four training and doing it for too long of a duration, you could also be kicking in this catabolism state. How can you tell that? So I recommend anybody who's not sure what's happening here, go out to a local 5K or 10K race in your local area and just watch the runners because you're going to see two things significantly. You're going to see some runners that almost look emaciated, right? They're very thin. They've got muscle, but they, they don't look healthy. Or watch any Olympic race and watch the distance runners. They don't look healthy. And you will also see a lot of people who may be very fast and may be able to run that race very well, but they are also overweight. And so what that leads to is we have a metabolic activity here that is being driven by cortisol that is probably leading to a increase in fat mass, a decrease in muscle mass. And in some people, it makes them emaciated and other people it is contributing to their weight. It is definitely not improving their weight. So it can lead to muscle loss and increased fat mass. Cortisol can also affect the way the body stores glucose, which is our main energy source for the body. High levels of cortisol can induce insulin resistance, where the body becomes less sensitive to the signal of insulin. So therefore, your body has to use more and more insulin just to get glucose in your cell. And so it will then lead to a poor regulation of blood sugar. And then obviously, insulin resistance is the decade, two decade, three decade activity that eventually leads to type 2 diabetes. So type 2 diabetes always starts with some level of insulin resistance until your beta cells and your pancreas can no longer keep up. Obviously, chronic stress, poor diet, lack of physical activity or excessive physical activity, and obviously medical conditions can probably lead to all this. If we look at that, we know, so step number one, cortisol leads to insulin resistance, which can contribute to weight gain. Cortisol also leads to the starvation response, increasing ghrelin which makes you more hungry and leaves you less satisfied. And it also can trigger the breakdown of muscle tissue and the increase of fat mass through that process. So like I said, the starvation response is really important. So let me explain part of this mechanism. In the wild, mammals never have high cortisol for any length of time. 
they have a fight or flight response. So if I'm a zebra and I'm running on the Serengeti from a lion, I have a fight or flight response. If I happen to be faster than the slowest zebra and the slowest zebra gets taken down, I'm going to stop running because I know at that point, I'm no longer at risk. At that point, cortisol starts to come down. They go back to relaxed state. If you've ever watched any of the National Geographic sort of specials, you see that. You can see a lion chewing on an animal like a football field away, and all the other animals are hanging out by the water hole, just chilling out because they know that they are no longer food. So cortisol is never high in the wild unless an animal is starving. It helps us cope with stress, obviously, but it, it, it regulates our metabolism and it also helps the body adapt to periods of food scarcity or malnutrition. And it makes perfect sense because for millennia, we have had starvation as a significant risk. And there's still huge populations across the world that have starvation as a significant risk. Most of us in the United States do not know what that looks like, but we may feel like we're going to starve if we don't get lunch every day. So in times of food scarcity, the body's energy needs aren't being met by the nutrients that are being consumed. Calories, nutrients, vitamins, minerals, all of that. In response to this, the body's going to activate a bunch of metabolic changes that help us conserve energy and ensure our survival. And this is going to result in excess cortisol. Cortisol helps you maintain blood sugar levels in period of starving by breaking down protein and fat stores in the body and converting them to glucose which is going to then be used, especially in the brain, to protect the brain because the brain uses glucose as its primary fuel. This is the process called gluconeogenesis, and this is done in the liver. So the amino acids, the proteins that you're eating, get taken to the liver, get made into sugar, and your body uses it as fuel. In addition to its role in gluconeogenesis, it also reduces inflammation and immune function which helps us conserve energy. So as cortisol stays high and high, in the short term, it reduces inflammation, right? That's why we give hydrocortisone and other things for inflammatory conditions. In the short term, it reduces inflammation. And I talk about that a lot when I went into different reasons for autoimmunity. And in the short term, it also reduces parts of the immune function to help conserve energy. And cortisol in the short term also suppresses appetite and reduces the body's need for calories by slowing the metabolic engine. Longer periods of lack of uh, food, which induces cortisol or high cortisol over time, helps us feel like we don't need to eat. So how may this play a role? So for those of you who are coffee junkies, and, and I'm a coffee junkie, I love coffee, but if you get up and you ram back, you know, three or four cups, you know, the venti cups or whatever it is you're doing, and you have coffee in the morning and you notice that you're never hungry afterwards, it's because coffee raises cortisol. And adrenaline. And so it, for a short term, it induces that stress response, which makes us feel more alert, i.e. so we can go scourge for food and go scavenge around. But it also increases that cortisol so our appetite is suppressed. In some ways, that may be advantageous. I like coffee, but I don't want it to be my primary fuel so I can run on adrenaline and cortisol all day. So cortisol does suppress the appetite. When all that happens in times of food insecurity, it can also have an, that negative effect, remember? So it's going to induce weight gain over time, insulin resistance, and immune function. So that starvation response is going to very much drive the activity of foraging, weight gain, insulin resistance, muscle tissue breakdown. So let me go a little more into how cortisol plays a role in gluconeogenesis. Obviously, cortisol is 
helping the starvation response and it suppresses the appetite. But when it goes to break down protein, right? So it goes to your muscle tissue and says, I'm going to pull the building blocks of protein out. It's going to take those building blocks known as amino acids, take them to the liver, and then the liver goes through a conversion process, gluconeogenesis, to make sugar. So your body can then move that into the uh, bloodstream so your brain can have enough sugar because our body keeps a really tight rein on sugar. We, it, will, it will find a way to make it. Red blood cells can only use sugar as fuel and your brain most likely is going to use sugar as fuel unless you have high levels of ketone. So when cortisol is high and we've got this induced gluconeogenesis, what else do you think is happening? Your actual activity of ketone production is going to plummet, plummet. So you can't make enough ketones so your brain feels it. So when your body can do gluconeogenesis, it's to preserve fuel for the brain so you can still forage, right? So this is very much true in the animal kingdom, and it's very much true with us. This is a protective mechanism. So what could be happening if I'm eating a really high level of protein in my diet? So there is some research out there that shows that we may be getting that activity in our diet where we are inducing that pathway to actually increase gluconeogenesis because we are overeating protein particularly if cortisol is high. So in some cases, if I'm consuming a large amount of protein, it may be going through what we call first pass metabolism in the liver and then getting utilized through the pathway of gluconeogenesis because of the level of cortisol instead of going to muscle protein synthesis. And there has been a little bit of research that shows depending on how we dose out our protein, we may induce that first pass liver metabolism more frequently if we dose protein over time in small amounts as we get older. So what that means is, is like in children that don't have high cortisol probably, and they're much more efficient, we can give small amounts of protein all day long and they can metabolize it and use it appropriately and the body will make muscle out of it. But there were some studies done on older Americans and they found that when you drizzled out sort of protein in little 15 gram doses, that the body would basically run it through the liver first and we may not induce muscle activation and muscle building or what you call muscle uh, protein synthesis. And that when you gave larger doses in a bolus at breakfast or the first meal of the day, whatever that is to break the fast, and at the last meal of the day, then you got better muscle protein synthesis if you were exercising and stimulating that and particularly if cortisol levels were lower. So depending on what's happening, you could be eating a high protein, low carb diet and your cortisol level may be inducing some gluconeogenesis. And what's happening is you're not actually using it for your muscle tissue because of the level of cortisol. And I think, I think that was definitely true for me because I, um, I am naturally wired to overproduce this stuff and, and I live a lifestyle that I very much have to protect my cortisol levels by getting good sleep and other things. But I'm somebody that sort of thrives on a stress response. I like adrenaline. I'm wired genetically for that. And so I have to really watch my, my lifestyle pieces to make sure I'm not doing that. And I know that this was true for me when I was struggling to lose weight because I could not induce the appropriate activity because my cortisol was so high and a lot of that was tied to my sleep and why I had the braces and everything else. So gluconeogenesis can absolutely be problematic here as well. Cortisol also plays a role in thyroid function, and this is huge for people that think they have thyroid problems or do have thyroid problems, and it doesn't matter whether you've been given thyroid hormone or not. This can affect whether the hormone actually works. 
And I know this was the case for me because I have been put on thyroid hormone over almost, I guess it was about 17 years ago. And I have done every different kind, every different kind of dose all over the place, compounded T3, armor, NP thyroid, compounded T4 and T3, differing degrees of of levels trying to level out my thyroid function. And despite the fact that I had different doses, I never felt different. Most of my symptoms didn't necessarily get better until I addressed the cortisol problem. So this is a biggie for anybody that thinks they have thyroid issues, or if you do, you have to address this or you're not getting the value of your thyroid hormone if you're taking it. So cortisol can block the thyroid hormone receptors by competing with the thyroid hormone T3 itself by binding to those receptors. And when cortisol binds to the thyroid receptors, it prevents that thyroid hormone from clicking in and activating it. So essentially, it's like somebody jammed a key in your car starter, and all of a sudden, now you can't get your thyroid key in there. So this leads in a reduction of the activity of the thyroid hormone, um, which obviously is going to slow the metabolism. If you get your blood work done, guess what's going to happen? Your levels of hormones are going to look totally normal. They could very much be normal, high. There's a hormone that gets produced by the body as a mechanism called reverse T3. That is, is one of the mechanisms that this gets blocked. Reverse T3 happens more as we get older. So you could still even have normal levels of reverse T3, but you're still having blocking. And here's the reason why. There are two main metabolites of cortisol. So when we make hormones, we have to metabolize them. So let's say we have free cortisol circulating. The body takes it and starts to metabolize it. The metabolites of cortisol are better markers of true cortisol production. So if you've gotten like a salivary cortisol before and you've wondered what it is, that shows about 5% of your actual cortisol. And it's going to vary throughout the day because it has a diurnal rhythm or a rhythm with the light dark um, activity. But that's only 5% of what you're making. Your metabolized cortisol is the sum of an alpha tetrahydrocortisol a beta-tetrahydrocortisol, and a beta-tetrahydrocortisone, otherwise known as alpha-THF, beta-THF, and beta-THE. You don't have to remember that. But what you do want to know is that the, the production of THE cortisol and THF cortisol in themselves can block the, the thyroid hormone receptor on the cell, even if reverse T3 is completely normal. So that blocking effects of cortisol and it metabolite is not permanent, but it is part of the effect of cortisol to help the body survive a starvation state. So it's going to block the thyroid function and it can be reversible, but chronic high exposure to high levels of cortisol with chronic stress can do this for a significant amount of time. And so this, I, I can't even emphasize this enough um, in my hormone reset program you know, we, we address all these different hormonal imbalances and metabolic imbalances, and we have a methodology through it. But if somebody struggles in that process, it is almost always that this has not been put under control. They still have sleep issues or their work environment's super stressful, or they have a really stressful family environment. Um, they're working too much. They're managing too many people and, and all those other things. And so we have to find ways to help the body adapt to that stress and see if we can drive that down. And it's not something that turns around in 20 days often. We have to really, really work at it. But we can get that to work. And, you know, the challenge is often we have to get well in an environment that very well may be making us sick. And so we just, you know, we work with our people to try and help them find ways to manage it. You know, as a woman who owns a company, has a nonprofit, 
does a podcast, has an online program. And then I, you know, I'm married and have an active life. I'm finishing my PhD dissertation. And I also help manage my mother, who is 88. I recognize stress is there. And so, you know, for me, I compartmentalize and and I'm, I stick to a schedule and I have a lot of discipline, which helps create containers for my stress so I can keep that low. And I also really, really work on my sleep. Like I am militant about my sleep because that is probably one of the biggest players if your sleep is messed up. So we already know how cortisol leads to insulin resistance, the production of glucose out of proteins, the starvation response, and the blocking of the thyroid hormone at the receptor. So what does it do when you've got estrogen dominance? Let's say you're a little bit before perimenopause. It's going to play a role too. So cortisol has been shown to stimulate the production of the enzyme aromatase. And aromatase converts your androgens like testosterone and androstenedione into your estrogens, estrone and estradiol. So when we have a high level of cortisol, we get an increase of this estrogen production and a decrease of our androgens. And we can see this a lot in women when they get into our 40s because you're in a natural estrogen dominant state in most cases because progesterone, the counterbalancing hormone, has already declined. What else is happening is in addition to the increased production of estrogen, cortisol inhibits the metabolism of estrogen in the liver, which can further contribute to estrogen dominance. And when the liver cannot metabolize estrogen well, the levels build up, leading to an imbalance between estrogen and progesterone. Now, again, I'm going to point back to my genetics. So if you want to go listen to my interview with Kashif Khan, particularly about the, the, the next one where I, he, I actually go through my personal genetics, you can also be genetically wired to not be awesome at getting rid of your estrogen. So those people that don't metabolize their estrogen well to begin with, this is huge. And I think for a lot of the women that struggle in their 40s, I can tell you from the testing that we do in the, with the women in the Hormone Reset Program, almost all of them have some serious activation in this process. So this is a good 20 to 30% probably of the population that struggle in this area. And this may be why you may not be able to, at 45, let's say, lose weight doing all the same things your other friend is doing, and she's losing weight. And it's because this mechanism may be a big player. So cortisol also contributes to estrogen dominance by increasing estrogen production and inhibiting the metabolism of estrogen in the liver. What can we do about this, right? Because again, I think if I were to put in order of importance, I would say that this is right up there with like two and three in what is really causing weight gain for women and especially weight loss resistance and the act of aging. Cortisol ages is more, way more rapidly. I already alluded to some of the things that I have to do. So I'm going to share my, my greatest assets in reducing cortisol. So the biggest one I see is sleeping, right? So we have to maintain a good sleep-wake cycle. And what the research shows is that if we sleep earlier and get up earlier, so meaning we go to bed at a decent hour, I, I shoot for no later than 10 o'clock at night. I need to be horizontal and ready for bed, if not slightly before that. And I try and get up earlier. And that means if we're following the circadian rhythm of the planet. So because cortisol and all our hormones have this diurnal rhythm and our body is better equipped to handle the world when we follow that circadian rhythm. And that includes insulin production. So, for example, your insulin production is about 40 to 70 percent less after 7 p.m. than it was at noon. And it's because your body's ready to go to bed. 
right? You may not be because you're on YouTube or doing something else, but your body is. So trying to get to bed earlier and then waking earlier, especially as the sun comes up or earlier, I wake up a lot earlier than the sun, unfortunately, but in getting early morning sunlight that helps, you know, reset that clock helps you get better sleep, but it also lowers cortisol. So sleep is required. And we see that the shorter someone's sleep time is. So let's say you sleep five or six hours, the greater likelihood for insulin resistance, type two diabetes, all cause mortality. So the more we can sleep, the better. Now, on the other side of it, could you sleep too much? For sure, that may be a sign of something else. But for the most part, we want to shoot for seven to eight hours at night so we can get adequate sleep so our body can rest and restore. And then the quality of that sleep needs to be good. We need to have sleep that has a lot of deep sleep and has a lot of good REM sleep. Deep sleep is where we consolidate um, memory and learning and REM sleep is where we process our emotions. And so that's really important. So the other thing is, is to eat adequately and appropriately for my stress level, my activity level and my body's needs. I do do quite a bit of intermittent fasting. But intermittent fasting isn't haphazard. That is planned, controlled window of feeding alterations to help your body turn on autophagy, turn on all their kind of rejuvenation pathways. You can't get up in the morning, chug six cups of coffee, skip lunch, and then have dinner, but run with your hair on fire every day and get the same benefit. So we have to do thoughtful fasting. We have to do thoughtful food composition. And if you're grabbing stuff on the go, chances are you're not getting the right macros. If you get to dinner and you're starving and you're going to kill somebody and eat them if you don't eat something right now, or if you get to dinner and you're snacking the entire time you're making dinner and then you feel like you got to eat the rest of the night, you didn't eat enough earlier in the day. And it is that old adage, eat like a king in the morning, a prince at lunch and a pauper in the evening. That's really important. And I have found for most of my women that 16-8 fasting where you skip until lunch doesn't work very well when we do it all the time because it induces the cortisol response. Most of us did that in our 20s and 30s as a weight loss kind of effort, maybe even haphazardly. And it worked better then, but it doesn't work now. It's better to rotate in and out of fasting. And also robbing your body of carbohydrate content all the time can induce insulin resistance, a more sort of uh, refractory um, insulin resistance when you start having any carbs because your body doesn't know how to do that. And it is also stressful for the body. We have those factors. Uh, the other thing is you can look at how to really organize your life and how to induce less stress by what's happening. And that often comes down to owning your no and figuring out what things you have to reprioritize and delegate. That's a whole nother conversation, but it is definitely something most of us have to do. And then it's appropriate exercise. Many of us either are getting too little or too much or too much of the wrong kind. So long term um, things like a cardio, getting on an elliptical trainer or something else and going all out for 30, 40 minutes when you're above that zone two training where your heart rate is above that sort of fat burning range is going to induce the cortisol response and your body's going to chew up muscle instead. The problem is good cardio is where you get zone two training where you can still sort of speak, doesn't feel like you're working hard enough, and the value is in the time. So zone two is something you need to have time to do. It needs to be an hour or more. And it's very effective at helping your body be more, more metabolically fit, but most of us are doing it at the wrong rate and with too much intensity. 
weight training and high intensity intervals for short durations lower cortisol. I'm sorry if you're going somewhere and spending 45 minutes going in and out of intervals and you know which things I'm talking about. There's a lot of gyms out there promoting this. You are overdoing it. The research shows after about 15 minutes of high intensity intervals, the value of that goes down radically, but nobody's going to get into a car and drive and pay a lot of money for a membership to do a 15 minute workout. So many of you, if you're working your tail off, you're overdoing it and you're inducing cortisol and moving all of those things in the wrong direction. And then the other side of it is also the adaptogens. So there are a bunch of herbs that can really help this pathway. And they're all the things that you've probably read about for stress. Uh, your holy basil, your ashwagandha, your rhodiola, L-theanine, kava, passionflower, lemon balm. All of those herbs help modulate the stress response. Some are more stimulating than others, like licorice and ginseng. So if you're flatlined and can't make it through the day, they can help. Or if you need to bring the stress level down, the calming ones like holy basil, tulsi, those things, rhodiola, ashwagandha, can help calm things. So you can use those adaptogens too to help your body sort of modulate the stress response. But I can tell you there's no pill on the planet that will make up for the lifestyle. Believe me, I've tried. And if I could found one, you'd know because I'd be selling it. It helps, but it can't replace it. It's supplemental. So adaptogens can help too. And I almost always have some adaptogens in my foray of what I'm doing to sort of just help what I know I'm going to be up to. All right. So now you've got some idea of how your stress may be playing a role in your weight loss resistance and some steps on how you can handle it. So I thank you for listening to Menopause Mastery. If this was helpful for you, share it with a friend. If you loved it, I'd love to hear about it. And I'd love for you to give me a review. And if you hit subscribe, you will make sure that you won't miss out on any future episodes. And if you didn't love it, let me know too, because I do read all of those reviews and it helps me understand what my podcast listeners really want. So thank you for listening to Menopause Mastery and I'll see you next week. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Menopause Mastery Podcast. You are why I'm here and I am so very grateful. Hit subscribe so you don't miss any wisdom on creating the most exceptional life on our terms. If this episode has helped you in any way, please share it with a friend to spread the love and together we rise. You can follow me on social media at Betty Murray PhD and you can reach me online at BettyMurray.com. 